Hi, I'm Sheila Jaffe. I was the casting director on The Sopranos, and you're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Sheila Jaffe. Sheila was the casting director on the show, along with her partner, Georgianne Walken. Sheila joined me in the studio to share her personal story, her experience on The Sopranos, and the intricacies and serendipity that went into casting this brilliant ensemble over the course of 86 episodes. Sheila's a master at what she does, having worked on some of the most iconic projects across TV and film. It was a special treat to be able to spend some time with her. That's all I got. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, listeners. Here's Sheila Jaffe. So you grew up in the Bronx. I did. What was your experience growing up there like? It was great. I, you know, it was, you went outside and played. There were like 30 kids outside at any given time. And they were all characters and neighborhood kids. And you, you know, played jump rope, potsy, very Bronx game. Do you know potsy? I don't. Explain it. It's like hopscotch, but it's called potsy in the Bronx. You, You throw your keys into the one, you know, you draw the boxes on the, street and yeah. you hop into the different boxes. But in the Bronx, we called it Potsy. Then we played marbles. We had marble season. You know, it was just like, it was really great. And um, when I was 11 years old, I found out I was adopted, mm-hmm. which had been kept a secret from me my entire life up till then. But the whole neighborhood knew because my mother was never pregnant. So all my friends knew I was adopted, but they were told not to say anything to me because adoption was not really... Um, it was a stigma. Yeah. It was, you were different. I was the only person I knew adopted. I never knew anybody else going to school or anything. Did you look like your adopted parents? No, and I spent hours going through pictures, always looking, oh, I look like that person. Who's that? Is that a cousin? I look like her. But in my mind, I made believe I looked like my father because I couldn't bear the thought. I mean, how I found out was so traumatic. I had an argument with a girl in the street, and she kind of just said, you know, your mother doesn't care. Your parents don't care about you because your real mother lives in Harlem. You're adopted. And her mother came and pulled her away, you know, because this was not a good way for a kid to find out. And all my friends, and I was like, why did she say that? And all my friends got really quiet and said, oh, I got to go. I got homework to do. Mm. And so I knew, you know, I just knew that it was the truth. And my parents were afraid to tell me because back then there there was no language. There still isn't great language for adoptees, but um, they didn't have the tools And the doctor had said, you know, when it comes time to tell her, I'll tell her. So Mm. I was, it was confirmed to me in a very cold clinical, you know, one-on-one with the doctor who I only associated with illness and pain. Right. You know. Did you understand at 11 what it meant? No, I just knew it meant that somebody didn't want me. It became a big abandonment issue. 
And it stays with you. It's a lifelong journey. I was just going to say, have you ever reconciled that? Or how do you reconcile that? Well, um, as all adoptees do, you start searching, which now it's easier. Now they just open the records in New York. If you were born in New York State, you can get your original birth certificate, which everybody else has except you. But back then, you had to search. So there were all these groups. And I tried searching when I was 14. I knew the hospital I was born in. And I went there, and I said, I want my birth certificate. I made my girlfriend go with me. We got all dressed up. We went downtown to, you know, 18th Street and 2nd Avenue. And I... And the lady said, well, you can't have that. Those records are sealed. So then I learned all this kind of language about adoption. And then as I got older... um, I I kept searching, and then I buried it for a while. I didn't think about it. And a fellow adoptee, somebody I knew that I didn't know was adopted, called me. He said, I know you're adopted, and I'm adopted, and um, I want to encourage you to search. And I have the name of a therapist, and this was in L.A., who's adopted, who I think it would be great if you went and saw. So it started that way. Mm. And then through being more open about it and actively hiring. You know, you have to hire private detectives and everything to help find. Then you did. Now, different again. Does the internet help now? Well, Ancestry.com and 23andMe help. I mean, you just, you know, spit in that tube and, like, all of a sudden you have cousins. And that's how I really got to my father. I never thought I'd meet the birth father. And I did. How well, recently? he no, he 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 had passed away. Okay. He passed away years ago. But okay. I have a brother, okay. so I met that family. And he, the brother, my brother John, did the test, and it came up a match. So I have a brother on my mother's side that I met um, about 2005, and the brother on my father's side I just met like two years ago. Wow. But now my jigsaw is complete, and then through talking about adoption which I hadn't done my whole life. I know this is about the Sopranos. No, 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 this is about you. So in talking about, um, uh, you know, adoption to different people, I started meeting people that were adopted. And then I met um, somebody I knew. I told somebody I knew that um, I was adopted. He was an agent in L.A. He said, oh, my God, you have to meet Daryl McDaniels. That's what I was going to ask you about, yeah. He said, do you know who he is? I said, well, I know who he is, but no, I don't know him. Um, and he said he was just in my office last week, and he found out he was adopted at 35. And he's not 35 now, but he didn't know what to do with all this information. So we met, and we had like like a three-hour lunch out here in L.A., and we became friends, and we started these adoption groups like a 12-step meeting, only all adoptees. And they were really helpful for everyone because we all shared information on how to search and different emotions you have and the fear of abandonment. It's it's big. It looms big with all us adoptees. Really, it, it's a big deal. Um, I, I said to a fellow adoptee one time, like, my capacity, my fear of abandonment is greater than my ability to love in a, you know, committed relationship because it's just always I don't know I don't think it'll ever go away from me Mm. I mean some people maybe but I think just the way I found out and everything are you happy happier that you found out at a young age as opposed to Daryl who found out at 35 oh my god yes I can't 11 was too old 
I mean, kids should know right away. If you keep it a secret, basically you're saying there's something wrong with it. It's a mm. secret. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. The thing that I, I'm grateful, I met everybody, I'm fortunate I was adopted. Some kids don't get adopted. I don't think the word lucky is, you know, everybody, well, people used to say, you're so lucky your parents adopted you. I don't think it's luck. You're not in your family. You know, it's like that Dr. Seuss, no, what's that book? Are you my mother? Yeah, I read it all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're a bird and you're with, uh, you know, a pig family. It's just it's you're like... With a construction crane truck thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, um, so Daryl and I started these group meetings, and then we decided to do something for all the kids that didn't get adopted. And we started a charity. It's going to be 15, it's 14, next year will be 15 years, where we send kids in foster care to camp and give them new experiences. And we uh, we have so much success with it. And we're just starting our fifth camp. It's called Felix, right? The Felix Organization. Yeah. I'll tell you why we called it Felix, which okay. is cute. Um, but we're starting our newest camp is LBGTQ plus population in foster care. So they're going to have their, this is the first of its kind for them because it's a population within the foster care system that is really underserved. Mm. So Felix, we, when we met each other, we had all these like ideas, what we're going to do and we're going to, you know, run a city and we're going to tell everybody how, how special it is to, not as special to be adopted, but special to share with each other your stories and everything. And we wrote this little story, which we've never done anything with, about a dog that was adopted, and it was adopted into a cat family. So the cat family didn't want the dog to feel like it wasn't part of a cat family, so they named him Felix. But when he finds his birth name, his name, his last name, his real last name, it's not, I think, it's Felix Wagtail, because Mm. dogs can wag their tail. Right, right. So when he goes on his journey, he's like Felix Wagtail. And so we called it the Felix Organization. And the first year we had the camp, uh, we partnered with the New York Foundling in New York because nobody was going to give Daryl and I kids for three weeks in the summer, you know. So they became our partners because another adoptee that we met through our talking about being adopted was on the board there, and she turned us on to them. And... So the nun, um, Sister Carol, came up there for the first open house, and she asked why we called it Felix, and we told her the story. And she said, well, do you know what Felix means? And, you know, like, you know, no, we didn't. She said, it's the Latin root for the word happy, like Feliz Navidad. So it was a happy accident that we named it, you know, Camp Happy. Wonderful. Yeah. And how many years running is it now? Fourteen. Fourteen. And where can listeners go to find out more about it and support it? org. And we have a big event on May 18th in New York. It's a dance, and it's so much fun. We have a great DJ, and we have little surprises throughout the night. You know, like different things happen. And you do camps every summer? We do camps every summer. We do our original camp is four weeks in Putnam Valley, New York. Then we started uh, doing it out here. We do that with the New York Foundling. And then we started one out here with a 
a group called Happy Trails that does the same thing as mm. we do. And I've heard of that. They're great. Yeah. They're great. And it's the same model. It's the same population. So we do that for, now it's going to be two weeks. We used to do one week with them. We're going to do two weeks with them. And that's L.A. And then we started a smaller camp in Connecticut for two weeks with teen girls. And uh, and we do that with different uh, foster care agencies. And then we have... Uh, Brian's Camp Felix, which is, we partner with this family, the Jacobson family, in memory of their son, Brian. Um, so we have one week with teen boys with them, and then another week we started with teen boys. That is not Brian's Camp, but it's teen boys. And now we're going to start the LBGTQ Plus with with the Fresh Air Fund, which to me is so exciting. If you're from New York you and you grew up in a neighborhood, You've always known the Fresh Air Fund. They send kids that can't afford to go to camp to camp. Mm. And so we met with them. I just wanted to meet with them because our missions are so the same. It's all New York City kids. And they kind of, they're adopting us. So we are doing our first camp with them this summer. Up nice in, symmetry yeah. that you're being adopted yeah. by them. Yeah. How do you measure success? Well, how many kids we can serve. Okay. And last year we had a great year because, um, um, you know, Equinox had that um, thing happen where somebody had a fundraiser for Donald Trump and all the members, you know, were up in arms. So Equinox ran a nationwide uh, program and they picked five charities. They've always donated to us, but, you know, not a, not a huge amount, but they've been supportive. And um, they had, we were one of the charities. It was Maria Shriver's charity. It was an LBGTQ plus charity. It was a cancer charity. And it was uh, vets and foster kids. And all their members voted on which charity. They were going to give away a million dollars. And they were going to divide it according to how their members voted, what charity they wanted to give most of the money to. And we came in first. So everybody, so we had $290,000 from them, which enabled us to now have this camp, the new camp. And then for me, the success will be next year, I want to make that much money again, you know, more. Right. And I want to take it from the first camp, the eight-year-olds. Some of these kids have been with us forever. You know, they come back as counselors. They come back. One young woman is working with us now. I want to take it from the eight-year-olds to the aging out. When they're 18, they age out, and they really have no place to go. And uh, they have no skills. You know, they might have been in, I don't, you know, five different foster homes, one different foster home, 20 different foster homes, never in a foster home, just in a group home. Um, so I want to do something with the older population that is aging out and do it as a retreat for long weekends because a lot of them are now in school and working and they maybe can't get away for a whole week. So to me, that would be success to take them from eight, you know, from young. Sure. To teaching them life skills, like having people like you come up and say, oh, this is what you could do for a living. Right. This is what you could do. This yeah. is how you write a check. This is how you do this. This is how you fix your apartment. Things you don't learn at school, per se. Yeah, that your parents teach you. Yeah. That's actually beautiful. Yeah, the things that your parents are supposed to teach you. Yeah. 
So, you know, so being an adoptee and being able to do this is amazing. And having met Daryl was amazing. Daryl always says it's purpose and destiny. It was our destiny to meet each other. And it was, it, it, I don't know honestly how we did it. Two people just going, let's do a camp. And it happened. Well, that's how it starts. But it happened. It's amazing. I can't tell you how many times I was going to write my great novel. That never happened. Right, right. (laughs) You know, Well, sometimes it takes a partnership. For me, it does. It takes an alchemy to get something off the ground. Yeah, for me, it does. Even with casting. My partner was Georgianne. That's what I'm going to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Beautiful segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Really good. Yeah, I can tell you've interviewed before. (laughs) So, from the Bronx... How did you become a casting director? Who knows? I mean, I didn't even know what that was, you know? When I grew up, you could be uh, a school teacher, you could get married, or you could be a secretary. That was pretty much my options. And I I graduated high school young. I went to college at 16 because I had skipped a grade. Where'd you go to college? CCNY. Um, And I... That's a whole other thing. When I went to school, I know everybody talks about free college. So, well, any millennials listening, it's not going to be free college. But here's what, when I went to school, it was like. City College was a really good school. I think tuition was like $80 a semester. But you had to have a certain grade. You had to have a certain average. If you didn't have that average, you can go to night school and take courses and matriculate. And that was about as free as college will ever get, I think. Mm. You know, who's, yeah. who's paying for the teachers? Right. Who's, where the money, where's the money coming from? Yeah. So um, I didn't graduate because I was too young. I also don't think you should be going to college when you're 16. I was still it's hard. a baby. And everybody was big people. And, I, you know, and then I wanted to get my own apartment. And, you know, I don't know. So I just two and a half years and out. So I think it's like getting from the Bronx to downtown, that's what we called, you know, Manhattan. We went downtown. It's a big journey because when you're from the Bronx, you're in New York already, but you're not in Manhattan. You're not in the village. You're not in the cool places. Even though my parents took me to Broadway plays and everything when I was a kid. I always saw musicals. Yeah, you were like, you lived in the borough. It was just different. I think it was easier for people from Ohio to decide to move to New York. It just seemed like you didn't belong in the city. But eventually, you know, like Saturday Night Fever, you go there, you go over the bridge, and you you start hanging out in the city. And, you know, people in New York are just, I can't imagine growing up any other way. Like the things that you get to experience, the things that are available, the museums, the shows on Broadway, the, the, the subway, everything, the Staten Island Ferry. I mean, it's just, it's the greatest place. It's a great city. Sure. Are you from New York? I lived there and my wife went to Columbia grad school. So we commuted back and forth. So I you're on the Upper West Side. Uh, my apartment was on 22nd and 3rd. We lived right next to Gramercy. Nice, uh, yeah, yeah. The Lyric Diner was the spot we used to always go to, and it's no more. Uh, every time we go back, one less thing is no more. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's true. And then we, when she first moved there, she lived on 95th Street, which was Normandy Court, which was where Robert Eiler lived, and he was hanging out there the same time that I was hanging out there. When we oh, did, that's so funny. When we did the podcast, we talked about that. That's so funny. Yeah, so I was mostly on the east side, and when my wife Katie went to grad school, she commuted 
you know, from well, commuted. She took the train. She took the bus. Yeah. Or the tra- yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, through my years and I don't know, knocking around, trying to figure out what to do. I did study acting for a little bit, but I was always too shy and nervous to like get up in front of people. So that wasn't going to work out. You know what I mean? I mean, I would have to take a tranquilize at a, you know. Well, it takes a lot of self-awareness to know that it's not Oh, no, I was, like, too nervous. Yeah. Um, I, I never, I, it was funny. I had a hard time always, like, speaking in front of people. And Felix put me over that hump because it was something I believed in. I didn't like speaking in front of people because I didn't want the attention. I never liked the attention. But now I have, like, it's not about me. It's about Felix. So it makes it. It just opened up. I'm able to get up in front of people and not be shaking and, you know, and getting the flop sweat and all that. Um, And I I met somebody in uh, my first apartment in the city was on 73rd Street on the east side. And I met, I used to go to this bar there, and I met um, the bartender and we became friendly. And that bartender eventually opened a restaurant on the west side called Cafe Central. And I asked him if he needed help one night, opening night. And he said, yeah, yeah, stand by the door. And I had never, you know, worked in a restaurant. I was busy, you know, taking, acting, doing office temps, you know, that kind of existence. That's what I was doing then. Um, after I got out, after I dropped out of school. And um, I did a good job standing at the door, and he said, do you want to keep doing this? So I became the hostess of this restaurant where actors came. And it was on the Upper West Side, and it was in the 80s, so there was a movie called Animal House that had been out, and all those guys lived on the Upper West Side, Peter Riegert, Bruce McGill, uh, Tim Matheson, they all started coming to Cafe Central, and it became an actor's hangout. So I met, I, I, I mean, Bruce Willis was our, the bartender there. Uh, Joe Pesci came in every night. Robert De Niro came in. Robert Duvall came in. Uh, Matt Dillon, Sean Penn. So I met all these actors, and the actors came because the guy who owned the place became friendly with the ballerinas from the New York City Ballet. So they would come in. So all the guys would come in to meet the ballerinas. So it just became this incredible place that I worked at for seven years from opening night till closing night. And I knew a lot of people. And I met George Ann there. What was she doing there? So her husband, Chris, used to come in and... One night she came in. I don't know if she. I don't know if she came in with him that night or with his manager because his manager used to come in also. Just I mean, Cher came in there. It was crazy. The people that came in there. It was just like, and it was tiny. It seated like sixty nine people. It was just who. It, 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 nobody could understand why it was just so fabulous, but it was fabulous. It was just one of those things. And I happened to be right in the center of it, which, you know, destiny again, I guess. So when Georgianne came in, I had already met Chris. I knew it, so I was happy to meet her. And I 
I made her feel very welcome is what she says now. She said, you put your hand on top of mine and you took me to a table. And she said, and I felt so good. You were just so nice to me. So we became friendly. And then when the restaurant closed, which it did because we moved to a bigger space and it lost some of its magic, um, she was in Israel with her husband shooting a movie. And she met this Israeli director who said, uh, will you help me find four American actors you, you know, to be in my movie when you go back to New York? And she had worked a little bit around Julia Taylor and around this manager and in theater, so she knew a little bit about casting. And while this was going on, the restaurant closed, and I had no idea because now, even though I never had a career in mind for anything, I was in the restaurant business. That was the career, you know. And what was I going to do? Open a restaurant, work in another restaurant? It, it, I just, I was really lost, not sure of what to do. And she asked if I wanted to do that movie with her. And she said, I said, I don't know how to cast. I mean, I, she goes, we can figure it out. We'll figure it out. And um, I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. And she said, well, they'll pay us $15,000 and I'll share it with you. That was, you know, I, I had a rent control department on the West Side. I was like, that, that's my rent for, you know, three months at least mm-hmm. more. I could live. And um, so we did it. And it was called War Shepherds. I never saw the movie. I know it came out in Israel. I never saw it. And then I, we weren't sure how this happened, but maybe through an agent who knew somebody was looking for a casting director, somebody called us. And then we got another movie. And then Penny Marshall kind of, because she had come to the cafe, and I was always nice to her, she told me. So she wanted to, she goes, I'm going to try to help you a little bit. You know what I mean? So she introduced us to somebody. Yeah. And then it just snowballed. Like we were just. How far along was Georgiana in this line of work? Not very. So you guys were both figuring it out together. Oh, yeah. We worked out of my apartment. Like, Michael Imperioli, Sam Rockwell, they they were Chloe Sevigny, they all auditioned in my apartment. Trees Lounge? Trees Lounge. You said Chloe Sevigny and I thought yeah. of that. Was that her first role? No, she had been in a movie that Harmony Corinne, I called Kids, I think it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. this was her second role. So you started working out of your apartment. Did yes. you guys form like a formal company or were you just... Yes, we did. Walt and Jaffe Casting. Wow. We had a company and I still worked... Because we didn't get a lot of work at the beginning, so I still worked in a restaurant. I became a hostess in another restaurant that one of the bartenders from Cafe Central got me the job. You know, because when you work in a restaurant with people, it's like it becomes a family. You just know each other and you help each other out. Um, And we're still friends. You know, so many people that work there I'm still in touch with. Um, So I I would moonlight, you know, I'd leave to go to my shift at 6 o'clock. Georgianne would stay in my apartment, you know, to on three nights a week that I worked in the restaurant. And then, you know, we just, we got lucky. You know, we kept doing the work. We showed up every day. And that's something I think everybody needs to do. You just show up and act as if, you know what I mean? We sat at the table and we we would, like, make lists and, you know, talk about actors and stuff. And um, 
one thing led to another. How did the Sopranos project come about? So I imagine that they were meeting other casting people by the time they met us because I think it was a big deal for HBO. It was one of their first shows. I mean, Oz was on already, but it was really one of their first, you know, it was... uh, Ground-breaking. Ground-breaking. It was such a good script. Oh, my God. So I think they had been meeting, and I don't think David was feeling it, you know, because he was from the East Coast, and they were meeting people in L.A. because I even met him in L.A. So I don't know that he felt that connection. He was very specific in every character and what he envisioned because it was so personal to him. And these were people he grew up with. You know, like Steve Van Zandt was somebody that looked just like the person in his neighborhood. So it was in his brain. So I don't think he was finding that kind of person for the casting. I, I don't know because all of a sudden we got a call and I happened to be in L.A. So I met with him and he had seen Trees Lounge. Somebody had told him to see Trees Lounge, I guess, because it certainly didn't do a lot of box office, you know. And he said, that's the kind of casting I want. So it was all... Real people. It was real people, but they were actors that we all knew about New York, like Michael and Kevin Corrigan was in it, and uh, just Elizabeth Brocco, you know, and, and just people that... Anthony LaPaglia... Yeah, we we had him and um, D- Danny Baldwin, but these were the names that we needed, right, right. you know, <laughs> to get it made. Steve Buscemi and, you know, and Chloe was relatively new. And it was just the the background people in it and the smaller roles were just important to David. So I met with him and, and I read the script and I met and Georgianne was still in New York, and we started casting out here. But I knew people could do it. Like, I, when I read it, I knew Michael should be Christopher. I, I just knew it because I had cast Michael in so many things, and I just knew he would get this. And I also knew it was really important to stay as true as we could to Italians. I had done another movie— called The Slums of Beverly Hills, and that was also equally important to try to stay as true as we could to Jewish people, even though Rita Marino was, but she was, there was, but Carl Reiner and Alan Arkin, you know, mm-hmm. as brothers, they're Jewish. Jessica Walter, it was important to me. That's how I approached both of those projects. And I know to David it was important. I mean, yes, where some people, you know, not Italian, Nancy certainly wasn't Italian, but you know, but it it all worked out. Yeah, you know, and and Jim, because I had done so many independent movies, um, I had an occasion to put him in something where he was so good. It was something for the Sundance Lab where he played a hippie father to Clea Duvall, and I knew. Because up till then, all you ever saw him was beating up people, you know, Patricia Arquette and, you know, playing the heavy. And I, I saw the, tr- the thing they did at the Sundance Lab, so I knew how what, the tender side of him and that there were a lot of colors to him, you know. And um, 
so there could have been nobody better for that role. He wasn't the name that I think HBO had been, you know, I'm sure they, not when I was on it, but I know there were some name actors that met on it. That were earmarked as, yeah. yeah. That, you know, I'm sure would have loved to be in it. But to me and Georgianne, we were like, this is so great for Jim. It totally was. It was called Tommy Soprano. In the right, in the very beginning. Yeah. Which, uh, true story, I typed out verbatim as like practice, like once upon a time, because I was so moved by the script. And I remember it being Tommy. I'm going to say a character. There's a lot of characters here, so you can be as brief or as long as you want with them. I'm going to say a character name from the show. Tell me what comes to mind about the casting process and the choice. Okay. <laughs> Tony. Well, just what I pretty much said, that I knew he had the tender side, the family side. I also knew that he had the kind of humor that um, would be important for the show. And when we read him, well, he came to read in New York, and Georgianne was in New York, and he, he wasn't prepared, let's say, or he had second thoughts. He always said that we ruined his life. He said, because Sheila and Georgianne, he said, they tell me, do this pilot. Nobody's going to see it because he wasn't sure that he wanted to do it. Don't forget, it was we had to sell the idea of HBO to all these people. This was at a time when television was not what it is now. And people were like, no, I have to have a movie career. I can't do TV. And Jim was a movie actor. So, you know, we, we were like, it's a pilot. Who knows if it's going to go? Just come in and read for it because we knew he was the best person for it. And so he wasn't prepared in New York. So then he, David couldn't get him out of his mind because he wanted to see him read and everything. So we flew him to L.A. And David and I were in David's guest house, just the three of us. David ran the camera and I read with him. And was that the moment? And then David and I went in, his VHS tapes, you know, <laughs> to watch it after Jim left. And we looked at each other and he said, him, right? I went, him. He said, you think he's funny? I said, yeah, him. And that was it. And we were so happy. He just did everything. It was great. David also loved my accent. So when I would read with them, I would read the part that Lorraine Bracco got of Melfi. And I would say, what kind of birds, seagulls, and because I'm growing up in the front, I didn't say seagulls, I always said seagulls, and David loved that. He would be watching me, you know, read the lines sometimes. So that was the kind of authenticity that I think people like Jim brought to it, and Michael, and, you know, well, I'll let you say the other names. Carmela. That was not easy. That was, uh, that was tough, because... Uh, I think David had a certain look in mind. It was more like a brunette. There were other actresses that were uh, New York that we read that we thought would... I don't want to say because it's kind of weird, you know, like that they didn't get the part, but they read for it. And we were in the room auditioning the final callbacks with Jim and um, after Jim had gotten the part, we were now matching Carmela with him, and we didn't have anything. And Carolyn Strauss, who was 
the produ- one of the producers with Chris Alb, you know, it was Carolyn and Chris, it was their reign at yeah. HBO, said, asked me, she said, what do you think about Edie for this? And Edie was on Oz at the time, so I, but I did not know that she was recurring. I thought she played that prison garden that was, uh, she was in a series regular. And Carolyn said, no, we never, we, she's recurring. We didn't do a series regular deal with her yet. So then we all just went, yeah, Edie would be great. And she was great. They were great. Their chemistry was great. She was great. Couldn't have been better. It's one of the principal reasons why people are still watching the show mm-hmm. in awe. It's like a stage play when the two of them were together. Yeah, and it's also, it just rang true. Yeah. It was just, it was, um, you know, there are movies they make about mobsters and TV things about mobsters, and you never see the heart and soul of them. It's just brutal, brutal. And the Sopranos, I also say Sopranos. I don't say Sopranos. Everybody says Sopranos. I say Sopranos. That's like one of my seagull things. Sopranos. Which is it? It's Sopranos is is what everybody says, but I say Sopranos. Dr. Melfi. Okay, so that was the age group of women that did not want to do television. None. People, when we do lists, you know, you call the agents, not interested in TV, not interested in TV, not interested in TV. You name it, we thought about people, not interested in TV. Lorraine, not interested in TV. Nobody was interested in TV. And Georgianne uh, took Lorraine out to lunch and told her the reasons to do it. And I think Lorraine agreed finally to do it. You know, like she was like, okay, I get it. It's really good. And she was familiar, I think, with the cast we were putting around her. So that worked out really well. She's one of my best friends, too. Um, Christopher, how much of David Chase was in Christopher? Oh, that's an interesting question. I have to ask David that. I don't know. I know Nancy was all his mother. That that was David's mother. Um, I don't know. But probably a, a, a big part. But, I mean, we read other people for that part. I mean, I even read people from Bronx Tale that had no lines that were just, you know, I remembered them being in it, like the guy who shot him at the end, that kid. We flew him. He flew out. No, he was happened to be in L.A., I think, Phil, somebody. I don't think he ever worked again. But I knew, like, Michael would kill this. I knew it. And he did. Junior. So, again, who's going to play that role? We've seen everybody do it. Danny Aiello, any, you know, anybody that age. And, um, and we considered a lot of people, you know, uh, I guess Phil Bosco was probably on that list. I mean, so many people. And David really wanted something unexpected. He didn't want, like, you know, the people from The Godfather necessarily, you know, like the prominent ones, you know. However, I was going through, you know, this was before IMDb, so you had to go through your mind and think about all the characters in all these movies. And I just was, I'll never forget, I was sitting at my desk, and I think I said it out loud, I was like, Johnny Ola. Because he was in it, but not, it wasn't a big part. And if you Ancillary. Yeah, it was like that guy. And 
I had a you know, I said, who played Johnny Ola? Who was that guy? And it was Dominic. And Sidebar, when did IMDb become a, like a, a veritable tool for you? Oh, my God. As soon as it came out, I, I can't imagine. You know, it's, un, it's weird. Um, <laughs> like new casting people, they, they don't know that other process of trying to remember everything in your brain and making your own lists. And, you know, how did you, how did you ever know who was in a movie? Mm. Like, how would you know who played Johnny Ola? You know, it You'd was... You'd have to go back, You have to the call the casting the director credits. that did it. Yeah. Or, or get, right, exactly. It was very manual. Exactly. And now IMDb is just kind of easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Silvio. Well... That was because David had that image in his mind. But that was pretty much David was always interested in him for that. Just his look, everything. Not that he had acted really before, but it was just so authentic. Janice. So that was after Nancy died when we cast that role. And... um you know, there were two sisters, Barbara and Janice. And very good memory, by the way. I'm I don't imagine that you go back and watch the show very often or honestly, then that role of Janice now became so important because she was going well, her and I guess Uncle June were gonna take over Nancy. Like I think David, you know, had it would have been different if Nancy had lived because she was running everything. And so now that role became really important. So we read some really good actresses for that. And Aida and Jim had um, a really good relationship. They were friends. They had done Streetcar Named Desire together. And, um, and, it just worked better with them. Even though Aida seemed younger, some to me, you know, like like she seemed more like the Barbara age as it was originally written. Mm. But then Barbara kind of disappeared and it all became Janice. So it it was it worked out really well and they were great together. And Aida became it was interesting. It she wasn't like she was like Nancy, but she was not because she was sweeter. You thought than Nancy was, so she played it that way. So it was almost against type. I totally see what you're saying. You know, yeah. and um, she wasn't like Lady Macbeth, even mm. though she was. She didn't Personify show it, it, whereas Nancy did. Yeah, there was no no doubt that Nancy was calling the shots there and mm. was like manipulating everything. Well, you didn't see it coming with Aida. So, and she fit, I mean, it just perfectly, I believe they were brother and sister that, you know, we had, I mean, it was an amazing cast. Was having them be together part of what closed the deal for you guys? Like, did you need that to know Jim and, and Aida? Like, sort that, of, yeah, okay. yeah. I think that closed the deal and all, yeah. And she was just the best yeah. for the role, you know. Again, iconic, legendary character. Even the smallest characters. I've had actors that have been in one episode on the show, but you remember their arc because of not only because of the writing, but because they have left an indelible sort of 
imprint on the yeah, show. Yeah, there were people like Mike, um, Michael Gaston, who was in the first episode, mm-hmm. first episode mm-hmm. where they beat him up. He yeah. was great. John Hurd. Mm-hmm. Oh, Vin McKazian. Uh, he yeah. was unbelievable. Sadly, not with us anymore, but um, John Hurd is one of those actors that um, who was a movie star in spite of himself. He never liked it. He didn't really, he didn't, he didn't have any confidence kind of John, you know, he was just like, why do they want to hire me, you know, but he was one of those actors that was so unique. You could read, uh, you know, 20 people auditioning for a role and he would make it his own. He would just say it differently than everybody else. So I just am a big fan of his. Also a big fan of Steve Buscemi's, who that was a good story. So Steve was, Steve and I used to talk after Sunday night about the show because Steve was a giant Sopranos fan. And and I had shared with him that we got it because of, you know, Trees Lounge. Like David loved Steve, loved his movie. And so we would talk about it all the time. And then one time Steve, who was the nicest guy in the world, said to me, and I had worked with him on, on other movies besides Trees Lounge. Um, he said, you know, I've been hesitant to mention this to you, but, you know, I don't know. I, I love the show so much, you know. Maybe some, you know, there'll be something for me down somewhere along the, you know. And there was a part. And I told David, we were talking about this new role, and I was like, what about Steve Buscemi? And David went, he'll never do it. Like, they both thought, like, the uh, like the other person didn't, didn't want anything did, to do wasn't with realistic. Yeah. And I said, no, I think he will. And then he got that part. But, okay, so, the, so it was supposed to be two years. He was going to be in two seasons, and because the scripts had to be adjusted or whatever, it didn't work out that way. And David called, Steve called me one day, and he said, David called me. He wants to have lunch. And then we knew that, you know, that was it. He was going to go away. But that was it. Even Steve Buscemi didn't know till the 11th hour. Correct. Wow. Yeah. A couple more names. Johnny Sack. So really at that point, that was um, through auditioning. And George Ann really did that in New York because now I was spending more time in L.A. because not to get into how little HBO paid us for the first few years, uh, I had a supplement. So I started getting work in L.A., which I had to take. So that really, that's a Georgian. You know, he was an actor we all knew from New York, and, uh, you know, and she auditioned people. When you are a casting director and you're working on a specific project, can you do multiple projects at the same time? Is that part of the gig? So, or do you lock in load on one and then you take it can, off your plate? It depends. The, the Sopranos was, is, was labor-intensive. TV is labor-intensive when you're on an hour show because you think about, like, when you're doing a movie, you just cast it, done once, that's it. Those are the characters. But when you're doing a TV show every week there's new waiters and waitresses and a bartender and a guy that gets killed and a woman that has an affair with Tony and you know and it's a big job and casting in television has never earned the pay or the recognition why do you think that is 
We do get Emmys, but very few people thank the casting. I think it's very hard for a director to kind of say, the casting, this was the casting director's idea because the director has now a relationship with these people. And, and they don't want anybody to know they were considering other people. And, and certainly the actors don't want to know that. So it's very fragile. And, and the money, I, 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 that I don't get. And it, it was the early days of HBO, so they paid nothing, really nothing. I mean, I cannot share how little it was, but it was really tough. It was a struggle. Has it improved? Yes. And it certainly improved for us. By the time I was doing Entourage, HBO, yes. I mean, you're you're a household name. I mean, my, my wife knows you. I said I was going to sit down with you. She's like, oh my God, I, I see her name on everything. So, really? That's yeah. That's so amazing yeah, to me. But. Yeah, no, but it, you, there are, but there are only a few. You're, that's, that's what I'm saying. So, like, you're kind of like, you're holding the torch, you and Georgian Walken, and, and the projects that you, you've done, I mean, that's, that's, they're, they're iconic projects. You know, hopefully we can get into a couple of those. But um, it's good to hear that it's gotten better. It has gotten better, but it's not great. It's still the casting directors on episodic TV get paid unequal to the job. Because if we get paid episodically and we're not at the top of the totem pole, actors get paid episodically, but they get a lot, writers, everybody gets, you know, we're at the bottom of the totem pole. And sometimes it's 10-day episode. Well, if the script's not ready or if something happens, the episode goes maybe three weeks and they take our money and they spread it out over the whole thing. So it's... They don't get the recognition and the pay worthy of what they do. It is a lot of work. I've said it. There it is. That's my political thing. Um, two more. Feech. Well, iconic actor. Yeah. Ooh, iconic. So who wouldn't want Robert Loja? And-, and he was game from the beginning. Well, was he a fan of the show? Do you know? Everybody was everybody, a fan. Well, everybody that's that's what did. Happened. So David Strathairn, oh, so, Sidney Pollack, all yes, fans. Yes, so that's what happened. So now it was everybody wanted to be on the show. It became easier. So yes. So the pilot was one thing and and the first season nobody knew what the show was. They didn't know what this was going to be. Oh no. People like Alec Baldwin would call me, like, you know, I really want to be on the show. Can't they be like the Irish mafia, you know, play against the, you know, it was just like, it, it mushroomed. Everybody now wanted to be on the show. No, no, no. It was that, that, that was no problem. No problem. Yeah. I mean, everybody was on it. Everybody I mean, was. look at the people on it. Yeah. You could go through lists of, you know, but that happens a lot when a show's on for a long time. That's if you true. go back and you look at, you know, Law and Order or things yeah. like that, you see, like, I that remember seeing was in this, it? Yeah, I remember seeing this movie. I can't remember. It was one of the um, uh, James, uh, uh, Jason Bourne movies. And there was like a girl at the reception area and it was Michelle Monaghan. Yeah. I went, wait, that's Michelle Monaghan. <laughs> and so it's, I think if anything on television now is on for a while, you People, you know, they're New York actors, especially in New York. Yeah. What roles were toughest to cast? You mentioned Edie, obviously. Yeah, that was tough. Um, the kids, Drea was easy. I mean, she just came in and she was just the perfect person for that role. One of my favorite roles and one of the actresses that I love so much that was in it was Sharon Angela. 
Yes, wonderful. She sat there not too long She's ago. She's fantastic. Yeah. And that was very personal to me. I wanted her to be in it because she was always good in everything that she did, and people didn't know her really. And I wanted people to know her. So that was exciting. Wonderful role. Yeah. Great character. Interestingly enough, a tough one was when we finally hired her, and it was the right person, was Donya Ramirez. Why was that tough? I don't know. It just we couldn't, we weren't hitting it. We weren't finding the right girl. Like a lot of people read for it. It just wasn't, it wasn't clicking. Clicking. And she was the right person for it. But again, she was somebody, you know, a lot of these people were people I knew, like, you know, like uh, Tony Sirico used to come to the cafe that I worked at. You know, all those people would come there, Joe Cortez, like Danny Aiello. All. Yeah. So I knew that there was this whole group of those guys. You were building a Rolodex and you didn't even really know it. No. So I was like, yeah, it was like the precursor for, yeah, it, it was a good segue. You parlayed working at a restaurant to what you do now, and that's a really cool yeah. transition. Was there anybody that you thought was perfect for the show but just couldn't find a role for, or anybody that slipped through the cracks looking back? I think everybody eventually found a place, like Annabella Sciorra found a place, uh, Frankie Valley. I remember it was Frankie Valley and um, Paul Herman were reading for Beansy, and you know, we had to choose one, but then... Frankie became rusty. Yeah, so then there was a role for him. Um, Anybody that read that never made it? I think it was on long enough that everybody eventually had a shot at it. I really do. You're an award-winning, prolific casting director, to say the least. Last count, it's something like 184 projects. Besides The Sopranos, what are some personal standouts for you, film or TV? Oh, I love The Fighter. Brilliant. Just listened to a podcast about that movie and and, uh, David O. Russell's relationship with Mark Wahlberg. And And I love that because it was reminiscent of Sopranos and casting those sisters. The sisters, yeah. Because the sisters had nothing. The auditioning process was so much fun for that. because. But those were all people I knew that had even read for, you know— the Sopranos, you oh, know wow. what I mean? Like, there were all these, like... But there was a specificity to those sisters. Yes, yes. And David really wanted it to be very specific and for them to look like the real ones. And that that was fun. And I mentioned Slums Beverly Hills. I was always I always fan of that, you know? I love every project I've done with Pete Berg and Mark Wahlberg. I just... I, you guys have a long-standing relationship. You've done... Have, that's you another thing. You've I'm done just, most of his movies, right? Of Is Mark's. That, of Mark's, yeah. Yeah, and I always wanted to work with Pete. I always wanted to meet Pete. They've done five Pete movies Pete would have together. been good in The Sopranos. Okay, there you go. There you go. Pete would have been great yeah, because he's so it. authentic and he's so... He could have been a David Scatino. Yeah, he's really like that one. But I always wanted to work with Pete and um, through Mark, well, through doing Ballers, he directed the pilot of Ballers where we hired somebody I'm very proud to say on his first thing was John David Washington, who is just amazing. Yeah, trajectories, sky's the limit. Um, and, um, and then I got to meet Pete and work with him, and now we've, you know, we've worked together on a few things. And I love, I love the combination of him and Mark, and I love casting around them. It's 
because I know Mark so well and I know Pete and I know what they're going to like and I know who Mark is going to respond to and have chemistry with. And we the the first movie I think that we really felt strong about was The Italian Job. Like everybody mm. in that was just, for me, perfect. Charlize was in that, right? Charlize yeah. was in that. Jason Statham was in it. Yeah. Mose Def was in it. What, I don't that know. That was his Jason name Statham now. before he was Jason Statham, right? That yes. was early Jason Statham. Yes. Again, casting directors don't get enough credit. Like you fight for people. I remember years ago I was doing this movie and I, well, we did this movie called Basquia, which was also yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was such a well done movie. He was he did such a good job, Julian. Um, and uh, Benicio was in it. Love him. Because Julian knew him. Julian knew a million actors. He knew everybody. You know, he was just, he was friends with actors. He loved actors. So he turned us on really to Benicio. He's a friend of mine. He's, you know, just starting out. And then I was like in love with Benicio. And I was doing this movie about a Cuban drug dealer. And I was begging the guy to hire Benicio and he couldn't like wrap his head around I for some reason he just wasn't sure because he hadn't seen him do too much mm. and you know was nervous to pull the trigger I guess and then finally I convinced him to go with Benicio but it was too late Benicio had taken something else so what movie was this for it was called Ill Town which you never heard of because Benicio wasn't in it you know what I mean? Yeah. There were good actors in it. Michael Rappaport, who I love, good yeah. actor. But it could have been Benicio. <laughs> Just, you know, I think it would have been, again, more authenticity because he's Cuban. Sure. I'm not saying he's a drug dealer, but, you know. Sure. Lightning round. Last good book you read? Um, I think I would say What Happened, Hillary Clinton. Okay. Did you listen to the audiobook or did you read it? I read it. Read it. Favorite music right now? Jazz. What TV shows and films have you enjoyed recently? Ford versus Ferrari. I didn't think it was an Oscar movie. I thought it was a good old-fashioned, fun, entertaining, great movie. Um, TV. Um, what am I watching? It's so much TV. It happens so fast. I can't. Oh, Shit's Creek. If you hosted a podcast, what would you want it to be about? Foster care. (laughs) Sheila, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Very nice. Very nice talking to you and good job. 